bah humbug. <laughs> death, poverty, greed, ghosts, and more death. Not the most likely scenario for a celebration of Christmas. What is it about A Christmas Carol that it sold 6,000 copies in the first year in 1843? Why did Chesterton hail Dickens as the last of the great men? One reason might be that G.K. Chesterton appreciated the topsy-turvy nature of the wildly imaginative worlds of Dickens, worlds that are motivated by great expectations and are ignited with greatly unexpected moments. Worlds that are also laced throughout with momentous paradoxes. A Christmas Carol begins with death, but ends with rebirth. The winter cold is nullified by the warm hearth. Four coasts expose deep darkness, but reveal a great light. Indifference and greed seem to dominate, but empathy and generosity prevail. We expect despair, but are surprised by joy. It is providential that we examine this story on the Feast of St. Nicholas and in the season of Advent, which is a season of hope, because this story is about hope. Chesterton defined hope. Hope means hoping when things are hopeless. <laughs> Hope's importance increases in proportion to its absurdity. And it is absurd to hope that the miserly Ebenezer Scrooge would someday become a jovial philanthropist. Let us glance just briefly at the historical background of our story, since most great literature is not only a reflection of its age, but also a comment upon it. Dickens lived from 1812 to 1879, and he wrote during the height of the Victorian age, which covered the reign of Queen Victoria from 1837 to 1901. <clears throat> it was a time of excitement, optimism, new ideas. The age was permeated by a sense of progress. It was also a time of expansion when the British Empire covered one-tenth of the globe. It was the best of times. Advances in science and technology caused great excitement. Witness the 1851 Great Exhibition and Victoria's ride in the very first railroad. And it was the worst of times. There arose a sudden awareness of the haves and the have-nots. Disraeli spoke of the two nations, that of the rich and that of the poor. The rapid growth of the middle class signaled a social revolution, and the rapid shift from agriculture to industrialization forced the population to move to the cities, which in turn led to overcrowding, crippling poverty. Child labor pr proved of a serious concern, with children working up to 16 hours a day in factories. Darwin's origin of species challenged people's faith, and the Fabian Society signaled the growth of socialism, while Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations introduced capitalism, and utilitarianism became a dominant philosophy. Finally, atheism was given legitimacy when Charles Bradshaw refused to repeat the oath in Parliament, so help me God. It was in this milieu that Dickens wrote. He was, on the one hand, a vehement defender of Victorian orthodoxy, with a sentimental attachment to the values of the middle class and a firm conviction that the warmth and love of the family hearth provided the solution to all the social ills of society. 
And yet, on the other hand, he was not, as many claimed, a naive optimist. He was a revolutionary reformer devoted to exposing the injustices in society, attacking hypocrisy, and the failure of bourgeois ideals. And he was dedicated to relieving the poor and the downtrodden. He knew of injustice and poverty firsthand. Born into a middle-class family where his father ended up in debtor's prison, Dickens, as a child, worked long hours for years in a factory. This experience would furnish him with much of the material and passionate focus in his novels. Dickens was a formidable Victorian personality. He was by far the most popular writer in his day. One in 10 had read him. Anthony Trollope, his contemporary and rival novelist, said of him, no other writer except Shakespeare has left so many characters who are known by their names as household words that bring to our minds vividly certain well-understood sets of ideas, phrases, and characters. Bah Humbug, Little Nell, Tiny Tim, Oliver, and Scrooge. Another testimony comes from the classicist, Benjamin Jowett, who delivered the eulogy at Dickens's funeral. He said, Dickens occupied a greater space than any other writer during the last 35 years. We read him, talked about him, acted him, laughed with him, and we were roused by him to a consciousness of the misery of others and to an emotional interest in life. When Dickens embarked on his writing career, the novel was a relatively new genre, begun by Defoe, popularized by Scott, and finally catapulted into the dominant genre of the Victorian period by Dickens. Generally characterized by a sentimental portrayal of the middle class values, the novel's role then was designed as an instruction for the upright living, a humanitarian protest against the inhumane elements in society. Dickens would employ allegorical plots, personified vices and virtues, and obvious moral themes in order to fulfill this role. He made clear his intention for his writings. He explained that his ethical objectives were the raising up of those that are down and the general improvement of our social condition. His goal was to generate empathy. He asked his readers to imagine suffering and consequently to feel with his characters in distress. He believed in the power of the imagination to stir sympathy and inspire good works. Clearly, he fulfilled the mission of the writer as defined by Alexander Solzhenitsyn in 1970 when he accepted the Nobel Prize for Literature. Solzhenitsyn said, who will give mankind the scales for understanding wrongdoing and doing good, for recognizing the intolerable and the tolerable? Who will make clear for mankind what is really oppressive and unbearable? and direct our anger against what is in fact terrible and not merely at hand? Who has the skill to make a narrow, obstinate human being aware of others' far-off grief and joy, to make him understand the dimensions and delusions he himself has never lived through? Propaganda, coercion, and scientific proofs are all powerless. But happily, in our world, there is a way. It is art and literature. The miracle they can work is to overcome man's unfortunate trait of learning only through his own experience, unaffected by that of others. So let us now see how Dickens achieves this message 
and this mission as a writer in A Christmas Carol. This short novel is divided appropriately into staves. There are five staves in a musical score, and there are five staves in this Christmas Carol, which is really a song about the transforming love and mercy of Christ. Stave one begins with a pronouncement, Bob Marley was dead. Much like Leo Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Illich, A Christmas Carol begins with what is usually the end of the story, death. This is a story that insists on the reality of death in order to inspire the protagonist and the reader to review how he has lived his life. This simple Christmas tale also reminds us of the famous medieval morality play, Everyman. That early drama relates the coming of death to every man who is totally unprepared to meet his maker. The play illustrates the medieval obsession with the ars moriendi, the art of making a good death. In the play, the protagonist, every man, eventually repents and makes a good death, realizing that he can take only his good deeds with him in death. At the beginning of A Christmas Carol, Scrooge is also dead, we are told. Oh, but he was tight-fisted, handed the grindstone, Scrooge, a squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner, hard and sharp as flint, from which no steel had ever struck out a generous fire, secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, nipped his pointed nose, shriveled his cheeks, stiffened his gait, and made his eyes red and his thin lips blue, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. A frosty rhyme was on his head, and on his eyebrows, and in his wiry chin. He carried his own low temperature always about with him. He is spiritually and humanly dead, but he does not know it. He will, however, be given a chance to amend his life, and by the end of the story, he will have learned that he needs to perform good works, and like Lazarus, he will be raised from the dead. Undaunted by Scrooge's rejection and cruelty, whoops, I missed something, sorry, sorry. Um, the, res oh, the resurrection theme operates in several of Dickens's novels, most prominently in Tale of Two City, where the refrain, recalled to life, refers to the resurrection of both Dr. Manette and Sidney Carter. As a foil to the dead and cold Scrooge, his nephew Fred is alive and warm. He rushes into Scrooge's office. Oh, Merry Christmas, Uncle! God save you, cried a cheerful voice. He had so heated himself with rapid walking in the fog and frost, this nephew of Scrooge's, that he was all in a glow. His face was ruddy and handsome, and his eyes sparkled. Undaunted by Scrooge's rejection and cruelty, Fred persists in kindness and generosity, and personifies the true spirit of Christmas with his pervasive joy and vivacity. In response to Scrooge's, Scrooge's utilitarian attitude toward Christmas, Fred explains what Christmas means to him. But I am sure I have always thought of Christmas time when it has come around, apart from the veneration due to its sacred name and origin, if anything belonging to it can be apart from this, I've always thought of it as a good time, a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time, 
the only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open up their shut up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on another journey. It is worthy to note, note, worthy to note here that some critics insist that Dickens's A Christmas Carol is merely and fundamentally secular with emphasis on charity, feasting, and merriment alone. This claim is dispelled by Fred's insistence here that nothing associated with Christmas can be separated from its sacred name and origin. Indeed, threaded throughout the whole story, as we shall see, are reverential and sincere references to the spiritual essence of Christmas. In spite of Fred's good cheer, Scrooge persists in his bah humbug attitude. He spurns Fred and deals cruelly with Bob Cratchit, his clerk. As he leaves his office, Scrooge rebukes a boy who wants to sing a carol to him, and then he refuses to donate to the charity fund, vehemently expressing his utilitarian philosophy. The gentleman says to Scrooge, it is desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and the destitute who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessities. Hundreds of thousands are in want of common comfort, sir. To which Scrooge asserts, are there no prisons? Are there no workhouses? The gentleman responds, many can't go there. Many would rather die. If they would rather die, insists Scrooge, then they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. After this misanthropic encounter, Scrooge wends his solitary way to the dismal, melancholic abode. There suddenly at the entrance, unexpectedly, his door knocker reveals the face of Bob Marley, his former business partner. Marley is a ghost from hell who comes to warn Scrooge. This incident introduces the motif of knocking and brings to the reader's mind the prominent Advent theme of Christ's knocking to awaken mankind and remind him that he knows not the hour. The ghost of Marley admits that he himself is doomed, but he insists that he has come to warn Scrooge. This episode recalls another biblical Lazarus recounted in the parable in St. Luke about the rich man in hell who ignored the poor man Lazarus, and who realized his sin was to neglect the poor. The rich man was denied his request to send a warning to his relatives. Here, however, in A Christmas Carol, Dickens gives this selfish rich man a warning and a chance to mend his ways. Most poignantly, Marley expresses remorse for his self-centered life. He addresses Scrooge as man of worldly mind. And he goes on to relate that he is doomed to roam the earth like the wandering Jew and witness what he cannot share but might have shared on earth and turn to happiness. He regrets that he wears the chains he forged in life, that his spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole. He moans that he suffers incessant tortures of remorse for opportunities missed in life. When Scrooge accosts him and says, surely you were always a man of business, Marley responds, business? Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were my business. 
Clearly, Dickens's idea of hell is never having performed charitable deeds. Marley ends by telling Scrooge, I'm here to warn you. You still have a chance and a hope of escaping my fate. At the end of stave one, Scrooge's transformation has begun. He cannot say humbug. In stave two, we encounter the ghost of Christmas past, who is both a child and an old man. With a gentle voice and an encouraging heart, he leads Scrooge through the memory to relive his past. The ghost states his mission. He reveals that he's concerned with Scrooge's welfare, with his reclamation. He says to Scrooge, rise and walk with me. And we are reminded of another Lazarus, the Lazarus whom Jesus loved and raised from the dead. They begin with a visit to Ebenezer's boyhood home, where his deadened senses revive and his feelings reawaken. We are told he was conscious of a thousand odors floating in the air, each connected with a thousand thoughts and hopes and joys and cares long, long forgotten. He rejoices to witness his youth. He sees his boyfriend's all, boyhood friends all in great spirits who shouted to each other until the broad fields were so full of merry music that the crisp air laughed to hear it. The icy cold Scrooge begins to thaw. He rejoiced beyond all bounds to see his friends. Why did his cold eye glisten and his heart leap up as they went past? Why was he filled with gladness when he heard them give each other Merry Christmas? In the next scene, the little boy Scrooge is alone but surrounded by books. His imagination is alive and it animates him as he reads about Alibaba and Robinson Crusoe and others. Scrooge's witness of this scene provokes pity for his former self, and he sobs. More significantly, this pity then provokes compassion for the young caroler whom he had chased away the day before. He tells the ghost that there was a boy singing a Christmas carol at my door last night. I should like to have given him something. As the boy Scrooge continues sitting alone, his sister Fan rushes, on, rushes in unexpectedly and surprises him. She takes him home to his father, who has forgiven him. Dickens here suggests the homecoming theme as Scrooge returns to hearth and home. Likewise, as the boy experiences the loving embrace of his father, we are reminded of the parable of the prodigal son. The next visit is to the factory of Fizzywig, the jolly man under whom Scrooge had apprenticed as a young man. Dickens here presents one of his ideals for society. He believed that the workplace should also be like the home, like Christendom, filled with warmth, family, and festivity. Fizzywig, who laughed all over himself from his shoes to his organ of benevolence, transforms his workplace one evening into a dancing hall, filled with food and festivity, where people of every station in life engage in joyful chaos of riotous good cheer and celebration. The reader is presented with a de delightful Dickinsonian image as the energetic fiddler fiddles and Fizzywig dances so deftly that he appeared to wink with his legs. Scrooge enjoys every moment of this encounter and is overwhelmed with delight and gratitude as he comes to realize that happiness is not based on material wealth. 
After this, a brief scene with his former fiancée, Belle, describes an older Scrooge in the prime of life, who had not yet the rigid, harsh lines of later years, but his face had begun to wear the signs of care and avarice. There was an eager, greedy, restless motion in his eye. The reader learns from the young woman that Ebenezer had once been noble, but that his love for her had been replaced by another idol, the idol of gold. She says, I have seen your nobler aspirations fall off, one by one, until the master passion, gain, has engrossed you. In the final scene, Scrooge experiences a deep regret when he witnesses Belle years later, surrounded by her many children and much loved by her husband. This scene is dominated by joy, gratitude, and ecstasy. The narrator says, they were in another scene and place, a room not very large or handsome, but full of comfort. The noise in this room was perfectly tumultuous. I know many of you in this room can imagine this scene. For there were many children there, more than Scrooge in his agitated state of, state of mind could, con, could count. They were not 40 children conducting themselves like one, but every child was conducting himself like 40. The consequences were uproarious beyond, beyond belief. The mother and daughter laughed heartily. And then a knocking at the door was heard. And such a rush immediately ensued that she, with laughing face and plundered dress, was borne toward it in the center of a flushed and boisterous group, just in time to greet the father, who came home attended by a man laden with Christmas toys. There were shouts of wonder and delight with which the development of every package was received. By the end of stave two, the reader, along with Scrooge, realizes he was once poor, noble, imaginative, joyful, and loving, but that his avarice had blinded him to the poor. His selfishness had depleted his nobility, and his materialism had destroyed his imagination, leaving him miserable and cruel. And yet, in his pilgrimage with the ghost of Christmas past, his senses have, have revived, his joy has been pricked, and his compassion has been stirred. Stave three opens with the lively, cheerful abundance of Christmas present. He is a jolly green giant, glorious to behold, decked out in living greens and bright gleaming berries. We are presented with a lavish feast of blazing hearth and a much changed Ebenezer Scrooge. He is now eager, docile, and reverent. He says to the ghost, conduct me where you will. I went forth last night on compunction and I learned a lesson that is working now. Tonight, if you have aught to teach me, let me profit by it. Here again, the setting plays a paradoxical part. The gloomy weather contrasts with the cheerful demeanor of all the people. The house fronts looked black enough and the windows blacker, contrasting with the smooth white sheet of snow upon the roofs and with the dirtier snow on the ground. The sky was gloomy, and the shortest streets were choked up in the dingy mist, half thawed, half frozen, whose heavier particles descended in a shower of sooty atoms, as if all the chimneys in Great Britain had by one consent caught fire, 
and were blazing away to their heart's content. There was nothing very cheerful in the climate or in the town, and yet there was an air of cheerfulness abroad that the clearest summer air and the brightest summer sun might have endeavored to diffuse in vain. For the people who were shoveling away on the housetops were jo jo jovial and full of glee, calling out to one another from the parapets and now and then exchanging a facetious snowball, laughing heartily if it went right and not less heartily if it went wrong. The ghost leads Scrooge through the streets, past everything and everyone, bustling cheerfully about his or her business, until the steeples called all the good people to church and chapel. And away they all came, flocking through the streets in their best clothes and with their gayest faces. Curiously, and in a suspiciously Catholic manner, the ghost blesses them and pours goodwill everywhere. The narrator says, and as they passed, he sprinkled incense on their dinners from his torch, and he shed a few drops of water on them, and their good humor was restored immediately. Finally, in the middle of stave three, we reach the climax of the story, as we come to the simple home of Bob Cratchit and meet Tiny Tim, who will provoke a complete change of heart in Scrooge. Once again, paradox reigns the humble and stark impoverishment of the family home and meal contrasts with the vivacious family's sense of plenitude, of excitement, gratitude, and hope for the future. When Bob enters the home with Tiny Tim on his shoulder, he reports what the child had said coming home. He told me that he hoped the people saw him in the church because he was a cripple and it might be pleasant to them to remember upon Christmas Day who made lame beggars walk and blind men to see. How can anyone doubt the spiritual nature of this story? As Scrooge is moved by Tiny Tim, so has the world ever since been inspired by this crippled child. It's important to note at this point that among his most memorable talents as a writer is Dickens's portrayal of children. Children as a subject for literature was a relatively new uh, phenomenon at this point in time. Depicting children as worthy of attention had begun only with romantics like Blake and Wordsworth. Dickens became a master. And he gave us numerous and memorable child protagonists, David Copperfield, Little Nell, Oliver, and Tiny Tim, to mention only a few. In A Christmas Carol, the child is central not only in the suffering but happy tiny Tim, but also in the Christ child himself. When Scrooge later observes the party at Fred's home, the narrator notes their sense of play and says, for it is good to be children sometimes and never better than at Christmas when its mighty founder was a child himself. Scrooge is moved to compassion for tiny Tim and begs the ghost not to let him die. Oh, kind spirit, say he will be, be spared. The spirit responds, if these shadows remain unaltered by the future, he will die. What then? If he be like to die, he had better do it and decrease the surplus population. This searing rebuke 
by the ghost reminds Scrooge of his former inhumane utilitarian attitude toward the poor and the infirm and provokes the climax of the story with Scrooge's epiphany. He hung his head to hear his own words quoted by the spirit and he was overcome with penitence and grief. After they leave Bob Cratchit's house, they pass many homes and find warmth and cheer and song everywhere. They travel through a mining town, past a lighthouse, and even out to sea. Finally, at his nephew Fred's home, our transformed and contrite Scrooge enjoys the laughter, song, dancing, and games. We are told, when the strain of music sounded, all the things that the ghost had shown him came upon his mind. He softened more and more and thought that if he could have listened to it often years ago, he might have cultivated the kindnesses of life. When it's time to depart, Scrooge, like a child, begs to stay longer. The stave ends by highlighting the true message of Christmas as the Christmas spirit blesses the poor and the sick and the destitute. Much they saw and far they went and many homes they visited, but always with a happy end. The spirits stood beside sick beds, and they were cheerful, on foreign lands, and they were close at home, by struggling men, and they were patient in their greater hope, by poverty, and it was rich, in almshouse, hospital, and jail, in misery's every refuge, where vain man in his little brief authority had not made fast the door and barred the spirit out, he left his blessing and taught Scrooge his precepts. In stave four, we meet the ghost of Christmas to come. The chapter begins with death and ends with hope. In the beginning, Scrooge is startled to see a, to see a corpse. The reader understands that the corpse is that of Ebenezer Scrooge, but Scrooge fails to recognize his own death. We then overhear the utilitarian, materialistic, self-centered businessmen speak of his death. They, men of this world, like Tolstoy's Ivan Illich, refuse to face the reality and consequences of their own death. The ghost then takes Scrooge to a grotesquely ugly part of town. The ways were foul and narrow. The shops and houses were wretched. The people half naked, drunken, slipshod, ugly. Alleys and archways, like so many cesspools, disgorged their offenses of smell and dirt and life upon the straggling streets. And the whole quarter reeked with crime, with filth, and with misery. There in a pawn shop, we encounter secular inhumanity and disrespect for the dead. We learn that a charwoman, a seamstress, and the undertaker have stripped the body of the deceased Scrooge, have brought his belongings to the pawn shop. The seamstress ironically notes, he frightened everyone away from him when he was alive, and now he profits us when he is dead. This episode reminds the reader how much of this story is about death especially the Christian view of death. The narrator, in a paradoxical apostrophe, puts death into perspective, reminding the reader of John Donne's Death Be Not Proud, and emphasizing, as does the play Everyman, that death can do no harm to a man who lives by his good deeds. 
but more especially in a possible allusion to the death of Christ that won eternal life for man. The narrator says, O cold, rigid, dreadful death, set up thine altar here and dress it with such terrors as thou hast at thy command, for this is thy dominion. But of the loved, revered, and honored head, thou canst not turn one hair to thy dread purposes or make one feature odious. That hand was open, generous, and true, the heart brave and warm and tender. See his good deeds springing from the wounds to sow the world with life immortal. After the frightful experience at the pawn shop, we enter the home of Bob Cratchit, where Scrooge is devastated to learn that Tiny Tim has died. In this home of mourning and sad resignation, Dickens again emphasizes the centrality of Christ and children when Tiny Tim's older brother Peter reads from the Bible, and he took a child and set them in the midst of them. The stave concludes with Scrooge's visit to the graveyard where he finally faces his own death, and he sees his own neglected grave and the nearby gravesite of Tiny Tim. Thereupon, he pronounces his resolutions and hope for the future. I am not the man I was. I will not be the man I must have been but for this intercourse. Good spirit, your nature intercedes for me and pities me. Assure me that I may yet change these shadows you have shown me by an altered life. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all year. Stave five begins on Christmas morning, with Scrooge's declaring it is time to make amends, and indeed he will. He has been recalled to life. He will revisit the incidents from the beginning of the story and do things right this time. This seemingly tragic tale turns suddenly comical as Scrooge dances while he shaves. And then as he leaves his home, he reverences the knocker, which, with the many knockings throughout the narrative, has clearly saw, symbolized Scrooge's encounter with Christ. He says of the knocker, I shall love it as long as I live. I scarcely ever looked at it before. What an honest expression it has on its face. It's a wonderful knocker. Scrooge then bounds into the street with greetings of God bless you and Merry Christmas for everyone he meets. The fog has lifted, the mist has dissipated, the heavenly sky is filled with glorious sunshine. Then wonderfully signifying his complete conversion, Scrooge goes to church. His journey has led him to the creche and the encounter with the Christ child. The story then comes full circle as he expiates for his sins and asks pardon of the businessman soliciting donations for the poor and he offers a large anonymous donation. He also mends his relationship with Bob Cratchit by anonymously sending a gargantuan turkey for their Christmas dinner. Finally, he gleefully accepts Fred's invitation to dinner, where he finds himself truly at home, filled with wonder and gratitude as he rejoices in the festivity. The story ends with a suggestion of resurrection and new life, as the narrator affirms that Scrooge becomes the father to Tiny Tim, who will live and, in a sense, be reborn, 
Likewise, Scrooge himself has been reborn. He is merry as a schoolboy. He announces, I'm quite a baby. He laughs again and again, and his laugh becomes the father to many laughs. So to conclude, Dickens was a man driven by great expectations, and he knew that often the fulfillment of these expectations are grounded in the unexpected. A child born in a stable would become a king who would redeem mankind and fulfill the great expectations of the prophets. A story beginning with the death of mankind would lead to the birth of a baby whose death would lead to the rebirth of mankind. Thus, A Christmas Carol is fundamentally not only about the true meaning of Christmas, but it also points to the wonder of Easter. The three growths of Christmas, like the Magi, lead Scrooge to the cradle of the child Christ, and like Lazarus, he is raised to a new life. Bah humbug becomes. Merry Christmas, and God bless us, everyone. Thank you.